Um, if you have a Bible with you, uh, on that note, uh, can I encourage you to turn to the book of John, uh, John chapter 8. And we are in our, our last in our series on the I Am sayings of the Gospel of John. Um, it, it, this is a bit funny, we haven't went through the book chronologically, um, or at least this passage doesn't fall chronologically because we're in some ways stepping back in time to the week whenever we looked at Jesus saying he was the light of the world. And right after he said he was the light of the world in the temple in front of the big menorah, um, he then also said this to the Jews who were listening to his teaching. And we're going to pick up in verse 31 of John chapter 8. Let's hear God speak to us. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because of my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do, not have, and you have, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not understand and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If you were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. 
He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Amen. So as I said, this is the the final uh, in the series of the I am statements. And whenever we began this series, William began with really an invitation to come and see. Come and see who Jesus claims to be for yourself. Come and see our Savior. And as we've worked through week by week, we've seen all the various statements of Jesus. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the vine. We're probably very familiar with lots of these statements. But this morning, as we come to close this, uh, this series, I want, you to ask, I want to ask you to do something exceedingly countercultural, which is I want you to ask you to stop, and I want you to think. Um, Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, uh, once said that all of man's problems stem from his inability to be in a room alone with himself. And I think often in our society, whenever we are faced with big, hard questions, we can very quickly find ways to distract ourselves and numb ourselves against those questions. Be that through watching Netflix or scrolling endlessly on social media or watching TV shows that we don't really want to watch, but it's just on. We can distract ourselves and numb ourselves from really facing up to what are the most important questions we will ever ask ourselves. And the question that this passage asks us this morning is the most important question you will ever ask yourself. It's who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I know we're all going to want to rush to say the Sunday school answer saying he's the son of God. But I really want you to, to, to think about this for yourself. Do you believe that? Is that just something you say because you feel it's this done thing? Is that, do you just say it because you're going through the motions? Or do you really believe that Jesus is who he claims to be? There was a famous writer, A.W. Tozer, who said that the most important thing about you is whatever comes into your mind when you say you believe in God. And I think We can almost adapt that slightly for this morning. And what John's trying to get across is the most important thing about all of you this morning is who you think Jesus to be. And nothing else is as important as that fact. And we see that the Jews who are in the temple listening to Jesus' teaching have their own views as well. And so I just want to work through that this morning and look at that question, who is Jesus? We see that the Jews first think maybe Jesus is a good man. Maybe he's a good man. If you look down with me in in verse 31, Jesus starts teaching. And it begins with what we might think is quite a good, nice statement, which he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, we hear the phrase, truth has set you free, and we think, well, surely that's good. That's a, a nice implication for us all to be truthful. If you were like me as a child, the, the line, you know, James, the truth will set you free was said whenever your parents knew you were lying and wanted to give you one last chance to confess before the wooden spoon dawned upon you. 
But yet, whenever the, the original audience of this hear this, they are offended. It's quite strange, isn't it? They hear Jesus offering them freedom, and they say, who are you to offer us freedom? Do you not know who we are? We are the descendants of Abraham. We are the Jewish people. We have never been enslaved. Now, we might be very quick to think, okay, this is maybe the Jews making a mistake in history because at the time, um, they were enslaved under the Roman Empire. Prior to that, they were enslaved under Alexander the Great with the expansion of the Greek Empire. Before that, it was Babylon. Before that, it was Assyria. Before that, it was Egypt. It makes no sense in many ways for them to say, we have never been enslaved. Unless... Jesus is driving at a very different kind of enslavement. Not an enslavement that's of some foreign power coming from the outside, but enslavement to a power that arises within our hearts. And I think the reason we need to grasp this is because Jesus is killed not for telling people to be nice and not by encouraging people to be good, but he's challenged because there is something deeply confronting in the gospel. There is a thorn that comes with the rose of the gospel. And the thorn is that we are all enslaved to something. And that something does not necessarily need to be a foreign military power, but that something is something that resides within our hearts. That something is sin. Jesus is not concerned about trying to make these Jewish folks just behave better. He's not telling them, you know, try your hardest and, you know, observe the law more closely. He's telling them they are enslaved to something, something that they are incapable of removing themselves from, and that's sin. And he's offering an opportunity for them to be completely free of it, to have true freedom, to have real freedom. And yet they still think Jesus is there just to make them good people, to pat them on the back and say, you good, faithful um, Jewish believers, keep doing what you're doing. Jesus is trying to address the heart of the issue for them, which is not a foreign power enslaving them, but it's a slavery that arises from their hearts. D.A. Carson, who's a great Bible scholar, said this, that whenever he's talking about this passage, he said, for Jesus then, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but a vicious slavery to moral failure, to rebellion against the God who has made us. The despotic master is not Caesar, but shameful self-centeredness, an evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of the worship of the creator. This is why Jesus would not let himself be reduced to the level of a merely political Messiah. It is not that his claims have no bearing on the questions of social justice, but that the pursuit of social justice alone will always prove vain and ephemeral unless a deeper enslavement is recognized and handled. In Jesus' view, Caesar himself is a slave. We are all enslaved in some way to sin. All you need to do is look around our society that will use the trumpet of freedom to deeper and in a more profound way bind themselves to the things they are enslaved to. All you need to, need to do is look at the epidemic of pornography in our society 
a generation of young people enslaved to their urges and unable to break free of it. All you need to do is look around at things such as the Harvey Weinstein incidents of the world, where for years Christians say the things that we see on the TV have become so cruel and so crude This will not produce a good and flourishing mankind. And then we find out 20, 30 years later that it was corrupt right to its core. It was enslaved and in bondage to sin. Sin enslaves, and the more we practice it, the more it grabs hold of us and clings to us and sticks to us. A command from Jesus to do better is not going to remedy that. But Jesus coming and saying, you are enslaved, but I offer you freedom. That is where the hope lies. And perhaps the saddest thing for this audience who first heard this is that they think Jesus is just trying to top up their own sense of goodness and sacredness when really it needs reversed from the core. Jesus is not just a good man. He's trying to get right at the heart of their issues. The second thing we see here is that you would maybe confuse Jesus of being a religious man. If you look, whenever um, they begin to have an argument with Jesus, the argument escalates quite quickly. And if you look down with me at verse 39, they answer him saying, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Their argument here is, in a sense, to point the finger at Jesus whenever they feel challenged and to retreat into their own religious identity. So whenever Jesus says, you are trapped in your sin, their response is to point the finger and say, aye, but we know that Joseph's not your real dad. And to a sense say, you were born in sin. We weren't. You're dirty, we're clean. And to try and assert themselves over Jesus saying, who are you to tell us what to do? Do you not know who we are? And they retreat into their own religious identity, asserting we are children of Abraham, children even of God, because God made promises throughout the Old Testament that his people Israel would be his children and he would be their father. And yet they fail to miss the point. They miss the point entirely whenever they grapple with Jesus himself because they think that it's that identity and who they are as simple faithful Jews that will protect them and not in how they stand before God with their sin. I think it's striking to note that if you look with me at how this section begins in verse 31, Jesus is not talking to those who are on the outside. There can be a great temptation whenever we talk about sin and like things like this. We think this is people who are on the outside of our religious institutions. When really, the Jews who are the ones who have this visceral reaction against Jesus are, as we see in verse 31, the Jews who believed in him. There can be a grave danger that all of us ought to be wary of. That whenever we think we will stand before God, the fact that we can say we put an envelope in every week will justify us. 
There can be a grave danger whenever we say, well, you know, I was a good faithful Presbyterian my whole life, or a good faithful Baptist, or a good faithful Anglican, or insert your own denomination here, that that is the justification. We live in a culture that very much defines itself by it's either its religious identity or its grandparents' religious identity. And that cannot save us. That cannot save us. Because that is looking to ourselves for our own salvation and not to Jesus. And the point that John is trying to get across is that it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who he is. And who he is makes who you are almost irrelevant. One of the saddest things in my own family is that I have family who are convinced that because they are faithful Presbyterians, it doesn't matter what they think about Jesus. And it is the hardest thing to witness people who think that because they have a religious identity they can retreat into, that they can hold the very offer of their salvation at arm's length. The most important thing about you this morning is what you think about Jesus. Not who you are, not where you've come from, but what you think about Jesus. Is he your savior or is he merely a servant for you? That is the most important thing you can ask yourself. Jesus is not concerned about making us good. He's not concerned about making us religious. But Jesus is concerned about showing us who he is, which is God. If you look down with me at how this passage closes in um, verse number 58, Jesus, after he's had this rebuttal, they say, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's kind of clunky grammatically, isn't it? It doesn't really make any sense. Um, this is the way that I speak. This isn't the way that famous literary authors in the ancient world would have spoken. Um, but there is an issue here with the grammar, isn't there? And if you go back and you look at the original language, there's an issue with the grammar there as well. It doesn't quite make sense. The only way it can make sense is if Jesus, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, he is not simply getting confused with his tenses, but he is making a declaration that he is not a good man and he is not a religious man, but he uses the covenant name of the God of Israel, Yahweh, I am, ego in me, to assert that he is not just good, but he is God. Jesus asserts using the same name that God used of himself at the burning bush, which is helpfully up here as an illustration for us. Whenever Moses asked to know God's name and said, I am, Jesus is making no small claim in this passage, but he is asserting as bold and brave faced as he possibly could that he is God. He is not simply good there for moral improvement and correction. He is not merely religious trying to preserve institutions, but he is God in the flesh revealing himself to us, dying for our sins upon the cross that we might know his father as our father. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Perhaps you have attended churches regularly your whole life 
And you think that, well, you know, becoming a Christian is something that I need to wait till I've got the right butterflies in my tummy or the right emotional movement or the right point in my life before I can make a decision. Can I ask you to settle that beside? Set all the Christianese beside all of the things that you may think may be putting in your way if you've been hurt by church in the past, if you have problems with various congregations, if you've been ever hurt by other Christians, set that aside and boil our faith down to its most basic and ask this question. Whenever Jesus says that he's God, is he lying or is he telling the truth? Because that is the most basic question we can ever face. There is no character in all of history who has left quite the impression that Jesus has. And I think it can only be because that he is exactly who he claims he is. We live in a culture that will love to say that, you know, Jesus was all about teaching love and peace. And yet they ignore the most foundational thing that Jesus said about himself, that he was God. And how does it make sense that a great moral teacher could have at the heart of his message that he's lying, unless, of course, he is God himself? That is no small truth for us to grapple with. That is the most important thing we will ever grapple with in our whole lives. When Jesus says he is God, do we believe him or not? Because if we believe him, it changes everything about how we see the world. There's a heaven and there's a hell. There's a hope. There's everlasting life. There's purpose and there's meaning. And if the answer is no, it means that we are nothing more than cosmic stardust drifting through the universe until our sun burns up and we are sucked back into the black hole that it leaves. That is the difference and the size of the choice that we have, the decision that we have to make. So do we believe him? Do we believe him? Don't set it aside. Don't push it further down the road. Grapple with it and do the most countercultural thing you can do, which is think about this. And those of us who do trust and do believe this and believe this wholeheartedly, can I ask you this? Take that truth about who Jesus said who he was and ask, is there any part of my life I am hiding this truth from? Is there any parts that I do not want Jesus to be Lord over or King over? Because if we believe this, it changes everything. That's the hope that we have. And that's the hope that we, we meet to praise about each week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of who Jesus is. Lord, in all that we do, would we seek to glorify him. It's not just good, not just re religious, but as God in the flesh. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.